Uh, thank you very much, Mike, Janelle, and Priya for giving me this opportunity to share some of my work with you. Uh, this is not the paper that I've written for the manuscript and uh, uh, does not have to do with the institutional forms of citizenship and democracy. So what I'm going to talk about is the polyrhythms of citizenship and how citizenship as an essentially contested concept unfolds in particular sites of political action and the site is in India spread through different historical moments. So I'll try and link up those different sites by using two tropes of transformative constitutionalism and insurgent citizenship. In an eloquently written essay on essentially contested concepts published in the 1950s, W.B. Galley proposed that concepts are informed by endless disputes about their appropriate usage. While there may be triumphal moments for a specific usage, the sides arrayed in the dispute continually claim co-equality, which could make either or both of them concurrently as well as potentially champion arguments. Irrespective of the validity of their respective claims to ascendancy, disputes around a concept prepare the ground for philosophical inquiry, which opens it up for elucidation and scrutiny. This scrutiny pertains in particular to the explanations it offers and the analytical tools it supplies for studying particular social and political experiences. It's interesting that around the same time that Galley was writing about the contests which inhere in concepts, Suzanne and Lloyd Rudolph were on a field visit to India to study the second general elections in a country where the exercise of franchise and participation in the electoral process was not as yet a familiar experience. Equipped with tools of survey drawn from a context where methodological individualism is assumed to be the basis of formation of political opinion, soon enough the Rudolphs realized and stressed emphatically in an article that they published subsequently that modes of inquiry which were developed in particular contexts could not be transferred elsewhere on an assumption of universal applicability. Indeed, not only did they find the tools developed in the familiar context of American politics appear strange in the Indian context, the tools appeared to be approved to be uh, completely inadequate and ineffective in making intelligible the evolving contours of electoral democracy in India. Not surprisingly, the article stressed the need for devising conceptual tools which were not simply efficient but also intelligible an attribute which does not refer to the application in the same form across cultures, but to their mobility and the capacity to assume legible forms as they traveled. Taking a cue from Galley, in this paper I'll begin from the premise that citizenship is an essentially contested concept. At the same time, however, I'll refrain from seeing the contest as one emerging from dispute over appropriate usage and prefer to see the contest as one where the dispute is over its meaning. I would argue that concepts are capable of both garnering and generating a range of meanings. The concern such a position raises then is one of intelligibility, which is of course a complex question. In order for something to be intelligible, it needs to be inserted in a shared code of familiar meanings. 
These meanings are likely to make things comprehensible, but in specific ways. For example, a podium in a classroom may be perceived as a location from, the t from where the teacher is likely to speak to her class, but placed in a chapel, it identifies the space from which the priest will deliver a sermon. In a public hall, it is a point from which a persuasive exhortation is made, and in a furniture shop, it's a commodity which may be bought to be put to any of these uses. Thus, the question of intelligibility needs to be understood in terms of the meanings a concept may assume and convey within a distinct set of historically situated social relations. It's not surprising, therefore, that over the past several years, the study of citizenship has no longer lim been limited to its understanding as a political and juridical status within territorially inscribed nation states and the entitlement which this status brings. Studies of citizenship have, been, have taken what may be called the anthropological turn, meandering along sites which are heterogeneous, inflected with by plurality of its idioms and mutations in its practices. The collection of articles in a recent issue of the journal Citizenship Studies, for example, claims to draw attention to the distinctive capacity of citizenship to connect diverse settings, struggles, and strategies without assuming that such practices are about the same thing. For the editors of the issue, citizenship can be grasped as a powerful keyword in political, social, and cultural terms that designates possible, actual, or desired relationships. But as a key word, they argue, citizenship can only be a connecting idea, but not a universal one. While agreeing with this framework, it may, however, be argued that plurality of idioms, diversity of scales and sites, and mutations of practices assume significance not in discrete and disparate existence, but within a referential framework informed by meanings which lay claim to universality. Thus, if one were to understand citizenship as a connecting idea through its plural expressions in time and mutations and practices across time, it may perhaps be worthwhile to see it as polyrhythmous rather than heterogeneous. Now, what do I mean by polyrhythms? History, says Elsa Barclay Brown, is like music where everybody is talking at once with multiple rhythms being played simultaneously. Events and people that get written about, she argues, do not occur in isolation, but in dialogue with a myriad of other people and events, so that at any given moment, millions of people are talking all at once. The historian isolates one conversation to explore, but puts it in a context in order to make evident its dialogue with several other related conversations. The idea is to make the isolated lyric stand alone, but at the same time in connection with all other lyrics being sung. The task of studying citizenship involves a similar craft of extricating and sometimes isolating distinctive strands from the multiple lyrics being sung simultaneously, but also steering them back into their polyrhythmous location so that one can see the relationship between them. It is this process of extraction, isolation, and subsequent relocation that's integral to the quest of familiarity, familiarity and intelligibility that's rolling back of estrangement from citizenship. Making citizenship familiar entails then making the strange comprehensible in its polyrhythmous variation 
But more importantly, it involves a process of inversion in which the familiar assumes a different meaning altogether. Working with polyrhythms as a conceptual and methodological tool, this paper will attempt to, to put together citizenship rhythms played along two sites in India and deploy two tropes which make it possible to study them in a relationship. The two tropes are transformative constitutionalism and insurgent citizenship and the sites that I have identified are the inauguration of constitutionalism in India and democratic iterations around the Delhi gang rape. While the sites are non-linear as far as historical simultaneity and contemporaneity are concerned, I would argue that they may be seen as generating incrementally and cumulatively idioms of transformative constitutionalism and insurgent citizenship, thereby imparting to these sites historical coevenness. Now I come to the first site, that's the inauguration of the Republic and the, the moment of transformative constitutionalism. <clears throat> Naya Kanun, literally the new law, a short story written by Sadat Hassan Manto in the 1930s, translated and published under the title The New Constitution, narrates the bewitchment of Ustad Mango, the Tangawala, with the idea of freedom. Called Ustad by his fellow Tangawalas of the Adda because of his wisdom and versatility with worldly matters, Mango is allured by the idea of the new constitution because of the promise of deliverance it holds out to him from the humiliation he suffers periodically at the hands of the inebriated Gora Sahabs. Unfortunately for Mango, this promise ends with disenchantment. On 1st April, the day the new constitution was to come into existence, steeped with the confidence of having finally become his own master, Mango picks up a fight with his tormentor, the Gora Sahab. For the briefest of moments when he is hitting and kicking the British soldier, venting his pent-up anger at having had to remain subservient and passive, when he could have smashed the man to bits, Mango lives the euphoria of the new law. Soon, however, the police bundles him up, puts him up in a lockup, and shuts up his chant of freedom, reprimanding him. New constitution, new constitution, what rubbish are you talking? It's the same old constitution. Manto's story was written in the context of the enactment of the Government of India Act of 1935, which is largely seen as having set in motion the transition to constitutional democracy and self-rule. Mango's exhilaration at having become a citizen unconstrained by the rule of the outsider turns into despair as old forms of domination continue. His estrangement from citizenship persists and he remains a stranger in his own home. Mango's bewitchment and subsequent disenchantment with the new constitution springs from its failure to transform him into a sovereign political subject. His disappointment is indicative of the powerful affective appeal of the individual and collective transition to the camaraderie of equal citizenship, a promise that lies at the heart of the constituent moment of transformative constitutionalism. It also displays the paradox of the transformative, which maps itself on a temporal register of the future, but remains burdened by the past, which persists in people's lives as quotidian experiences and in spectacular ritual enactments. The removal of estrangement from citizenship involves a countervailing process of familiarization that tears down domestication with all its constituent elements of subjection, domination, dispossession, and disenfranchisement. 
In the colonial context, familiarizing and domestication were dominant tropes of servitude. In Manto's Naya Kanun, Mango's bewitchment with the constitution emerged from the deliverance it offered from the reiterative violence of domestication in the world he cohabited with this colonizer. The freedom from being a stranger in one's own home involved a conscious and meticulous sequestering from the past. Indeed, it's the refiguration of the relationship with the past which distinguishes the temporal registers on which constitutions are etched. The constitution was to realize a beckons from the future, but the past could not be brought to a sudden halt. It had its own momentum and lingered on tenaciously in every, everyday patterns of life. Embodying the dialectic contradiction of the transformative moment, citizenship was characterized by performative acts of power manifested in state formative practices, and on the other hand by practices of insurgent citizenship, which kept alive the possibilities of a continual recreation of the political and new life worlds which generated overlapping visions of a future society. Indeed, the citizen precipitated at the originary moment of the constitution was Janus faced. Located at the threshold of the future, the citizen carried the burden of the past it had to erase. While freedom, liberty and equality were the organizing principles of a new society, it was citizenship as the repository of an identity marking an enduring rupture from the past which embodied the constitutional promise and vision. Significantly, the figuration of the citizen as the embodiment of this rupture involved an emphatic constitution of the collective political subject, we the people, as the source of authority of the constitution. The collective political subject was moreover not merely emblematic, but achieved consciously through what has been called a deliberately designed procedural error in the adoption of the new constitution with a view to severing the seamless transition of legal authority from its imperial predecessor. The error involved a deliberate non-adherence to the procedure prescribed by the Indian Independence Act of 1947 enacted by the British Parliament to lay down the legal frameworks and modalities of the transition which included the setting up of the Constituent Assembly. In an intentional eschewal of the procedure prescribed under the Act, the framers of the Constitution not only did not present the draft of the Constitution for the approval of the British Parliament, Article 395 of the Constitution of India repealed the Indian Independence Act. The repeal of the Act ensured that the rules of recognition of the Constitution and its pedigree could no longer be traced to the Imperial Crown in Parliament. We the people, through the members of the Constituent Assembly, came to be the source of authority of the Constitution rather than the authority being traceable to the Indian Independence Act enacted by the British Crown in Parliament. Yet the citizen precipitated at the transformative moment embodied the contradiction of the moment, which is evident in the well-known assertion by Ambedkar, where as distinct from the end-of-age claims of Jawaharlal Nehru, he asserted that on 26 January 1950, the nation was going to enter into a life of contradictions. This contradiction was being between a formal equality in the political domain and the deeply unequal economic structure, a contradiction which Ambedkar asserted, if denied for long, would imperil Indian democracy. Significantly, 
The description of the constituent moment by Ambedkar as a contradiction, as distinct from Nehru's ascription of transcendence, unconstrained by the past, is seen by Upendra Bakshi as an articulation of constitutional insurgency. Bakshi's reading of constitutional insurgency in Ambedkar's statement may be read within the framework of constitutional hermeneutics, which presents the constitution as an enduring site of contestations. These are reflected in the attempts to give the constitution a reflexive as well as a stable meaning in legal interpretations within courtrooms and in the performances of citizenship outside the domain of state power, that is, the people's practices of citizenship. It is at the interstices produced by these contestations that the elaboration of democratic citizenship takes place. This elaboration is inspired the by the possibility of constitutional insurgency, for which the constitution itself provides the tools, but is constrained by the concern around constitutional morality and durability, which puts limits on a proliferation of idioms and modes of citizenship. Now I come to the second moment, which is dissident insurgent citizenship and public protests. The iterative practices of democratic citizenship are reflective of the ways in which citizens, citizens' practices buttress state sovereignty by rooting their activism within and through the institutions of the state. Taking recourse to the constitution for replenishing their repertoire of constitutional rights, these iterations of citizenship make the constitution a site of contestation and a domain of struggles for ascendancy between the texts of governance of the constitution and those of rights and justice. Yet, people's practices of citizenship are not always about setting up interlocutory relationship with institutions of the state. They also emerge from a world beyond the struggles around constitutional text and meaning in a domain informed by performative acts of, of the power of the state and its interruption by people's resistance to the exercise of such power. Becoming citizens by interrupting the power of the state takes diverse forms. A literary rendition of insurgent citizenship is found in Mahashweta Devi's story, Dopadi. A tribal woman suspected of being sympathetic to a militant underground left-wing resistance group, Dopadi is arrested by the police. Sena Nayak, the officer in charge of the operation, asks his men to extract information from her about militant activities. Draupadi is tortured and raped in custody. The next morning, when she is brought before the Sena Nayak for further interrogation, she refuses to put on her clothes, insists on being presented before the officer in a naked state, and challenges him to kill her in an encounter. By demanding that she be encountered as distinct from being subjected to torture and rape, Draupadi erases her sexual subordination and presents herself as a political adversary equal to the Sena Nayak. By this act of elision, Draupadi denies Sena Nayak the power to bring her within the purview of the state's dominative power of coercion and control over her life and death. Draupadi, like Toba Teksing, another of Manto's stories, essayed a practice of citizenship inscribing a moment of pure politics, as Partha Chatterjee calls it, in his description of Manto's rendition of the violence of partition and Toba Teksing's death. <clears throat> Amidst the drawing of borders and the formation of the states of India and Pakistan, 
The governments of the two countries decided to exchange, apart from their abandoned women and children, furniture and treasury, their lunatics as well. The arrangements were complete and the lists of lunatics were prepared and agreed upon. On a cold winter morning, escorted by the police, the lunatics were brought to the Vaga border at the check post where there was bedlam as lunatics, bewildered and unable to comprehend the importance of the exchange operation and the sudden transformation into objects to be claimed and absorbed into one country or another, ran astray, sang, wept or fought with one another. When Bishan Singh's turn came to give his personal details to be recorded in the register, he demanded to know from the officer whether his village Tobatek Singh was in India or Pakistan. The officer laughed loudly. In Pakistan, of course. Hearing that, Bishan Singh turned and ran back to join his companions. The Pakistani guards caught hold of him and tried to push him across the line to India. They even tried to drag him on to the other side, but it was no use. There he stood on his swollen legs, as if no power on earth could dislodge him. Just before sunrise, Bishan Singh let out a horrible scream. As everybody rushed towards him, the man who had stood erect on his legs for 15 years now pitched face forward onto the ground. On one side, behind barbed wire, stood together the lunatics of India, and the other side, behind more barbed wire, stood the lunatics of Pakistan. In between, on a bit of earth, which had no name, lay Tobatek Singh. This moment, while teeming with the promise of pure politics, is rendered unstable by the enormity of the promise and the burden of responsibility it places. Yet, as a mode of contesting both the dominative and persuasive power of the state, by emphatically recusing oneself either from becoming a receptacle of the coercive power of the state, or from consenting to its persuasive appeal to submit to its protection, pure politics has reverberated in plural sites of insurgent citizenship. Resonating the literary metaphor of Dopadi, for example, a powerful political protest wove around the fe violated female body when in July 2004, a group of women, outraged at the rape and extrajudicial killing of Manorama, a young Manipuri woman, stood naked in front of the headquarters of the Assam Rifles in Manipur, challenging the army jawans to take their flesh. A continuous hunger fast since 2000 by Arum Sharmila, a Manipuri woman, demanding the lifting of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, is an expression of citizenship through the Gandhian idiom of non-violent resistance for the reclamation of the self within totalizing regimes. The fast by Sharmila presents a curious annual ritual of a cat-and-mouse game. The state attempts to bring Sharmila under the ambit of its authority by keeping her alive in its safe custody. She is force-fed through a nasal tube in a hospital prison where she is incarcerated on the charge of attempting suicide. Each year, the state releases Sharmila, who declares her intention of continuing the fast and is subsequently sent back to prison the paraphernalia of life-saving force-feeding reinstalled. This sequence of release, imprisonment and force-feeding has carried on as a perennial cycle, holding out for Sharmila and those struggling against the Armed Forces Act an existence where they surrender and reclaim their rights to citizenship through acts of defiance against unjust laws. While these spaces of performance of citizenship through passive resistance 
are far removed from what Saskia Sassen has termed the global street. They too, in allied ways, as Sassen would say, make powerlessness complex. The complexity of powerlessness in each of these cases may be mapped in terms of the potential it has for making radical democratic citizenship possible. The upsurge of protests following the brutal gang rape of a young woman in Delhi in December 2012 is an illustration of how the global street as a public world of appearance can generate enduring forms of democratic citizenship. The foundation for the December 2012 protests were perhaps laid down a year before in, certain, in the summer of 2011 when the India Against Corruption campaign rallied around Anna Hazare who sat in a hunger fast at the Ramlila ground, demanding strong and effective legal and institutional mechanism to control and punish corruption in public offices. The euphoria generated by the fast became so pervasive that the Jantar Mantar and subsequently the Ramlila ground was occupied for several days at a stretch by a large mass of people cutting across class, age, caste and ideological divides, all of them wearing I am Anna caps. The identification with the sacrificial idiom of politics without actually being burdened with the requirement of enacting the idiom allowed an exponentially large number of persons to become participatory witnesses in Hazare's fast. Unlike Anna Hazare's sit-ins at the Jantar Mantar and Ramlila ground which conform to the ritualized public spaces, the protests following the December 2012 gang rape in Delhi were a demonstration of how citizens reclaimed spaces wrested away from them. A dimension of this potential also lies in the capacity of the protest to disrupt and spill out of the ritualized or regulated space and make claims to the city space through political action. The protest against the gang rape surged in waves, initiated in the immediate aftermath of the rape by the JNU Students' Union, which took the city administration by surprise. The protesters appeared almost like a flash mob in the heavily secured Raisina Hill area around the intersection between the north and the south blocks. This area houses the national government and a ponderous, ponderously powerful bureaucracy with the president's house and the circular building of the parliament house at the other two ends completing an imposing picture of concentration of power and authority. Having almost made it into the precincts of the president's house, the students dispersed from Raisina Hill to congregate once again at the India Gate. The region around India Gate was subsequently brought under the purview of Section 144 of the IPC, an archaic remnant of a colonial law which disallows public gathering, rallies and demonstrations. Indeed, for the purpose of qualifying as a rally, the presence of four persons is considered sufficient. Soon enough, India Gate and the adjoining Rajpath became sites with the potential of becoming India's Therir Square as students, young women and men, school children and families made their way to it demanding stern and immediate action from the government. The police resorted to force to scatter the crowds using water cannons and putting up barriers to prevent people from collecting at the India Gate and Rajpath. The city was fortified. Entry into it was monitored. Metro stations were shut down to make getting into central Delhi difficult for potential protesters, cumulating into security measures which were substantially more than those ordinarily put in place when the city is on high alert. Significantly, the Rajpath, which was known as the Kingsway, 
when India was a colony, is a road whose name and location signals the exercise of state power. Stretching for a couple of miles from India Gate and climbing onto Raisina Hill, the Rajpath is flanked on both sides by vast expanse of green lawns which accommodate thousands of spectators on 26 January every year to witness the annual ritual of the Republic Day. In the early years of the Indian Republic, the Boat Club and India Lawns were not just the spaces where an annual ritual of military power and might of the state took place, but importantly, were also sites for the emergence of the public sphere. The public sphere, as Hannah Arendt has put it, is that sphere of appearance where freedom and equality reign, and where individuals as citizens interact through the medium of speech and persuasion, communicating and deliberating on matters which are of shared concern. For Arendt, the public sphere was the only repository and guarantee of equality and freedom. Seen in Arendt's framework, the Boat Club and India Gate lawns would embody a world of public appearance where the immense multitude could claim the Rajpath to express the desires of the Janta. It is the continual and persistent creation of worlds of public appearance which would generate an enduring public sphere where the republic of the people could come together bound by shared citizenship regardless of the ways their culture, ethnic and other loyalties were constituted. The public sphere space of appearance was, however, not entirely of the people. Periodically, the government of the day and dominant political parties would lay claims to it in a contest over a competing show of strength. In the early 1990s, a government order made Rajpath out of bounds for political rallies and demonstrations in the interest of national security and public order. Rajpath was purged of the people and restored to the state. The tents were shifted to Jantar Mantar, an observatory in the region adjoining the Connaught Place, and then again to a more constrained space at the Mandir Mark Shankar Road crossing, where the tents could come up and sit-ins take place after a prior permission from the local police station had been obtained. The progressive constraining and confinement of public dissent to designated and assigned spaces to a virtually five and a half yards of democracy from the mammoth possibilities allowed by the vast stretches of the India Gate and Boat Club is symptomatic of the manner in which a security state reinforces itself through affirmation of power by force. Perhaps the most massive of these rallies was the one called on 25th October 1988, when half a million farmers from West Uttar Pradesh descended on the Boat Club lawns in response to a call by their leader Mahendra Singh Tikayat in a week-long sit-ins the farmer who came with their tractors, trolleys, carts, charpoys, hookahs and cooking agitis converted the area into a farmer's panchayat. The ban on congregating at the India Gate came close on the heels of the demolition of the Babri Masjid in Ayodhya in December 1992, following which the BJP had decided to hold a rally at the Boat Club on 25th February to be addressed by Atal Bihari Vajpayee. While it did not use the word ban, the government disallowed the rally, stating that permission to hold it would not be given. The area around Boat Club was subsequently brought under a permanent ban, which operated through Section 144 of IPC, which, as mentioned before, empowers a government official, including the police, to declare an assembly of four or more persons unlawful, disperse a public gathering, and allow the police to restrict public gatherings in the, in the area for a period of 50 days. 
This restriction was however allowed to operate as a permanent ban through periodic renewals. In 2011, Bano B, a Bhopal gas victim camping at Jantar Mantar, petitioned the Delhi High Court against the operation of Section 144 as a permanent ban on holding demonstrations in Central Delhi District. The Delhi High Court ordered in the petitioner's favour, which meant that the Delhi police could no longer operate a blanket and permanent ban by continuously renewing it. But participants in a rally would still have to seek the permission of the local police in the central district areas around the India Gate, its lawns and the adjacent boat club area. Thus, while the police could no, lo no longer issue a blanket ban, it could still disallow specific rallies by citing law and order problems. In December 2012, following the protests around the gang rape, the government invoked Section 144 yet again to make the region around India Gate and Raj Rajpath out of bounds for the people. In the days that followed, right up to the passing of the Criminal Law Amendment Act 2013, protesters defied the ban, claiming city spaces. In the course of the protest, the city was marked with numerous shrines. The Munir Munirka stop where the student and her, and her friend had boarded the bus, the hospital where she was treated, and Jantar Mantar, among several others, became points where the residents of Delhi lit candles and held vigils. In the process, what occurred was an iconization of the raped woman through her figuration as Damini, which means a bolt of lightning, Abhaya or Nirbhaya, which is fearless, another name for the goddess Durga, and Amanat, something people hold together in trust, each connoting a distinctive positive attribute. The simultaneity of protests in different parts of the country forged a solidarity born out of shared outrage, mediated by social network sites and animated discussions on the television and the print media. As the nation listened expectantly to early updates from the police commissioner and the hospital on the progress in the case and a corresponding decline in health, it produced an imagined community of citizens. This community was not confined to India, but encompassed Indians abroad. In both its organized and amorphous forms, the protests demonstrated strong ideological variations, which may be seen as distributed along the fault line of a masculinist honor and izzat strand and a feminist freedom azadi strand. Both these strands invoked divergent ideas of the state, protective and dominative, which in different ways were embedded in and arose from the idea of the security state as an accumulation of its power effects. The honor is that strand was perhaps best exemplified in the description of the raped woman who was still critical but alive by Sushma Swaraj, then uh, the leader of the opposition in the Lok Sabha, as Zinda Lash or living dead. Izzat honor became a dominant slogan for a vociferous section, baying for the rapist's blood, demanding like a lynch mob that the accused be handed over to them and asking for retributive punishments like castration and death by hanging. This combined with statements coming from some politicians smacked of a masculinist camaraderie, cutting across party divides and a patriarchal ownership over the authority to decide on the final course of action. The liberation Azadi strand of protesters broadened the ambit of the protest to draw attention to some of the overarching foundational organizational matrices of people's lives, political, economic, and social, 
to show how the nation state, state, communities, and citizenship are embedded in gendered hierarchies. The protesters, uh, protesters drew attention to the foundational, reiterative, extraordinary routine and structural violence which flowed into people's lives along the axes of caste, religion, language, and ethnicity. They situated the rape within a seamless world of normalized violence which stretched across the country, the states in Northeast India, Kashmir, Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, and Orissa. For example, where regimes of impunity operated under the impact of extraordinary laws in the wars unleashed by the state against its own people and on people protesting peacefully against dispossession of their land and resources. Indeed, if in the honor is that stand, the state allied tactically with the order of the family, helping it to preserve its honor and reputation by bringing the family under its direct disciplinary control, the Azadi Liberation Strand showed that the alliance was fraught with violence, which operated as a mode of legitimation of state practices of rule, which recreated, reproduced, and reconstituted itself through sexual caste and communal violence. These aspects of foundational and reiterative violence made themselves manifest at diverse sites and were experienced in the lives of ordinary people. Perhaps for the first time in the living memories of a substantial chunk of Delhi's residents, the city of strangers seemed to have found a cause to rally around and invoke a camaraderie, which so far was reserved from, for the Mumbaikars to refer to their resilience. For a city that more often than not turns onto and against itself, is segregated into pockets of power, privilege, and deprivation, and has been referred to as Bedil Dili or city without a heart, those were days, strange days of familiarity. Writing in Kafila, Shudabrata Sen Gupta referred to the relationship which seemed to have sprung up among the residents of Delhi, marking as it were a transition from the mass society of consuming individuals, which Arendt was so critical of, to a vocal collectivity, bonding together around a shared feeling of having been wronged. Sen Gupta addresses the young women and men of Delhi in his writing, using the genre of letter writing, reflecting the need to renew and sustain the newfound familiarity. I'm writing to you again because I've been listening to you. This is a strange time when everybody is talking and everybody is listening, and the unknown citizen, who could have been any one of you, has transformed us all. I was with you last night, from 5.30 in the evening to around 9 at night, while we walked together. You were angry and happy and sad and determined at the same time. Several times in our walk together, punctuating the steady rising chant of Ham kya chate, what do we want, azadi. You also said, in kalabo, in kalabo, in kalabo, zindabad. I've heard the word inkilab and Zindabad said separately and together many times in my life, but barely with the passion and affection, even the love and longing with, you, with which you hyphenated them together last night. And when you said inkalabo, rounding off the end of the word with that vowel sound, as if revolution was the affectionate nickname of a young woman, like gulabo is for gulab, like rosie is for rosa, I could not help thinking that here was a young woman called Inkalab, that's revolution, and her sisters or friends or lovers were calling, calling her out to play. The heady chant of Azadi seemed to resonate with earlier historical moments of dissent, 
and the contemporary moment capturing in self the spirit of simultaneity of the dissenting Indian from Kashmir through Chhattisgarh against gendered violence and state impunity. And it also reverberated elsewhere in songs of protest, which wove the Delhi rape into their own much too familiar seamless world of violence. The vociferous demands for institutional intervention led to the setting up of the Justice Varma Committee, and its recommendations were received with approval by women's organizations, democratic rights groups, and civil society organizations, and lauded as the Indian Women's Bill of Rights. The Criminal Law Amendment Act, which was subsequently passed, were, was, however, seen as a betrayal of the expectations which the Varma manifest, Manifesto, as one feminist scholar has called it, had raised. Another spate of protests followed, but with dwindling intensity, as the debates around the trials against the six accused, one of whom died in custody, and another as a juvenile was not expected to face serious punishment, dominated and still continues to dominate the story of the Delhi gang rape. The promise of democratic citizenship, I'm concluding here, it may be argued, exists in the polyrhythms of citizenship, which ultimately aim at rolling back the processes of domestication to reclaim the political in citizenship. The challenge of developing a practice of citizenship within the framework of democracy involves being conscious of the processes by which the crystallization of power at the level of the political or the state takes place, which is manifest in the hegemonic articulations of citizenship. It also involves critical action whereby processes of democratization take place in the domain of political through a progressive rolling back of structures of power. The constitutional insurgencies which appear in the reference by Ambedkar to the contradictions which persist at the moment of transition from colonial subjection to republican citizenship may be seen carrying within it the germs of insurgent citizenship. It's important, I argue, to affirm citizenship as such, especially in the contemporary context where the modern citizen seems to have moved into a zone of indifference and individuated, individuated citizenship determined by the security state. Thank you.